Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, UTSU's Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Well, we're a day late. Uh, it's September 9th instead of the 8th. I had a one-day delay. And just to be honest, it's been a long week here. Um, once you do this long enough, usually the treatment decisions are fairly straightforward. And every now and then you have one that is... Uh, challenging, which is uh, you know intellectually stimulating, uh, I guess. But sometimes you get a whole bunch of those challenging cases all in the same week, and it, uh, you know, I just I felt residency tired, uh, you know, at the end of the day yesterday, and had to push this off a day. So uh, I had some time this morning um, uh, to, to to prepare a, a little review episode. So let's go back to uh, to August twenty fourth. Uh, FDA approved Ibrutinib for pediatric patients one year and up uh, for chronic graft versus host disease. Already was an approval in adults. Um, so that's news for those of you who works in PTMOC. That's useful information because now you have specific peds dosing as well as an oral suspension dosage form, which is the big news I want to highlight from that approval, which uh, useful in, in pediatrics, potentially also useful in adults who have trouble swallowing solid dosage forms. Uh, with the Brutinib, whether it's for chronic graft versus host disease or CLL, etc. Okay, on the 26th of August, the FDA approved Pemigatinib, or Pemazire, uh, for relapsed refractory myeloid or lymphoid neoplasms with an FGFR1 rearrangement, all right? So if you had been thinking of Pemigatinib as a solid tumor or cholangiocarcinoma drug, I implore you to think of it as an FGFR inhibitor instead of uh, think of it pharmacologically, not uh, indication-based, which is how, uh, as a pharmacist, I think about drugs. Now, this is FGFR1 gene rearrangement, myeloid or lymphoid neoplasms. The approval in cholangiocarcinoma or biliary tract tumors is an FGFR2 rearrangement, so different driver mutation by disease state. Uh, The dosing for solid tumor for cholangiocarcinoma is 13.5 milligrams daily uh, on days one to 14 of a 21-day cycle, so two weeks on, one week off. For relapsed refractory um, hematologic diseases, it's 3.5 daily continuous. Um, from a toxicity profile, you recall uh, I suggested thinking of this as IFOS, ocular toxicity and hyperphosphatemia. Uh, you do see those uh, dry eyes, retinal pigment detachment, increased tearing, keratitis, conjunctivitis, etc. Also, alopecia happens about half. Nail changes in like 40%, and a little bit of mild myelosuppression in a solid tumor um, data. Um, now, the lymphoid myeloid neoplasms, they don't go into any more detail on what these cancers were. So it's a bit of a hodgepodge. Um, this has not been published. This is FIGHT 203. It's been presented or published as an abstract, but you don't know what types of diseases these are here. This is 28 patients disapproval based off of. And these patients were either not candidates for an allotransplant, relapsed after an allotransplant, or um, were post-chemotherapy, uh, you know, chemotherapy, basically. In the study, they used both dosing strategies, both the continuous dosing and the two weeks on, one week off. The approval is for continuous dosing, but just maybe have some reassurance, there's certainly a, a less toxic dosing schedule, or uh, yeah, a less toxic dosing schedule if you were to need it. All right, the primary outcome, 28 patients, it's complete response rate. Not overall response, or not objective response rate, but complete response rate. These are all complete response rate, and the complete response um, uh, algorithm, not algorithm, but response criteria was dependent on the site, uh, which disease it was, all right? So uh, there were 18 of these 28 patients in chronic phase. 
um, 78% response rate, 14 out of 18. In blast, pay, blast phase, two out of four response rate. In patients with extra medullary disease, one out of three. So overall response rate um, was 79%. That's cytogenetic response rate, because there were three patients in the trial who didn't have morphologic evidence of disease, but they would have had a detectable FGFR1 rearrangement somehow. Uh, as far as maybe what's different in the toxicity data from this patient population, from the cholangio, things look to be about the same. Um, retinal pigment detachment happened in one and four, although none of those were grade three or four, although still a retinal pigment detachment as someone who knows nothing really about the eyes except what I see seems high, even if it's not a high grade. The cytopenias did appear to be worse if you make an apples to pears comparison from the hematologic toxicity data in cholangio versus the, the hematologic malignancy. You're seeing grade three or four cytopenias, whether it's leukopenia or thrombocytopenia, in about 15% of patients in the lymphoid myeloid neoplasm population, population in the 28 patients, uh, versus less than 5% in cholangio. Now, is that because they've got disease maybe in their marrow? And it's kind of like in CML, where you see some transient myelosuppression when you start treatment, and it resolves after treatments, uh, after response, don't know. Or could it be because you're giving an extra week of the, of the medication so you have more toxicity? Uh, could be either one of those. Okay, so now let's move on maybe to the, the, the meatiest part of the podcast, which is uh, on the 2nd of September, the FDA approved Dervalumab with Gemsys for locally advanced metastatic biliary tract cancers, which is basically cholangiocarcinoma. So some background here. If you go back to to Valley et al. Uh, in 2010 in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is the ABC02 trial. 400 plus patients randomized to either gemcitabine, 1,000 milligrams per year squared days, 1-8-15 of a 28-day cycle, so three weeks on, one week off, or the same dose of milligrams per year squared of gem, plus cisplatin, 25 milligrams per year squared, days 1-8 of a 21-day cycle. Basically, these folks got 12 weeks of treatment, so that would either be three cycles with gemcitabine alone or four cycles with gemcis, and then if no progression, they would on to receive another 12 weeks. All right, so there was a this, there was a definitive stopping point of treatment of 24 weeks. This is different than how we treat most metastatic cancers, where you give treatment until excessive toxicity or disease progression. All right, now this showed a significant overall survival benefit of gemcis over single-agent gemcitabine. So this established gemcis as the standard of care for, uh, for metastatic or advanced cholangiocarcinoma. So dervalumab plus gemcis versus gemcis is appropriate. I think clinically in practice, we don't necessarily stop gemcis if patients are tolerating it after 24 weeks. We continue it until excess toxicity or disease progression. It is a relatively low dose of cisplatin, 50 milligrams per meter squared per cycle, divided over two doses. Um, so at least in my practice, I've not seen that, that held at 24 weeks. Uh, alternatively, I've not seen many folks tolerate 20, you know, six months of gemcis. And I bring that up because uh, that, that becomes important when we look at the approval of Dervalumab in this space, which is in the TOPAS study. They had just under 700 patients. Half of them were in Asia. Uh, tumor area positivity of PDL1, which is how much PDL1 there was in the tumor and the immune cells. Um, so very much like a composite proportion score. Uh, above 1%, so that PDL1 above 1% was in 58%. Um, less than 1% were MSI high. 
uh, but they didn't look at, for it in everybody, maybe only half. And that becomes important because we're starting to see in GI malignancies, maybe not cholangio, but certainly in rectal cancer and, and colon cancer, this MSI high uh, GI cancer, maybe even in gastric esophageal, there's some data, it's a different disease entirely and, and um, should be get immunotherapy up front. Okay, so they either get Dervalumab, uh, 1,500 milligrams, uh, plus Gemcis for eight cycles, then Dervalumab every four weeks until disease progression, or Gemcis for eight, eight cycles, which would basically be that same sort of finite period of time. And then they got placebo afterwards, the Gemcis folks. Um, so that design doesn't seem to be that standard of care of Gemcis for eight cycles. Doesn't quite seem to be what we would do in practice. We'd do it until disease progression, but it is based on the the methodology of the Topaz-1, or of uh, ABCO2. So uh, I think it's a fairly designed study, actually, even um, though it may not relate to practice. Um, and their prime endpoint is overall survival, so yay. So there was a s overall survival benefit in favor of Dervalumab. Of course, it was FDA-approved. So the median OS was 12.8 versus 11.5. Doesn't sound like much. Hazard ratio 0.8. Okay, 95% uh, confidence interval 0.66 to 0.97, so it doesn't sound that impressive. And the Kettmeyer curves are not that impressive, although they do separate over time, especially once you get after like nine months and everyone's in that Dervalumab maintenance or placebo. Um, so there appears to be modest overall survival benefit. The force plot doesn't suggest that there's an, a, a difference in effect if your pd one is greater than 1% or less than 1%, although maybe... Most of the benefit is those greater than 10 or 20. We don't know. Uh, patients in Asia did seem to have more benefit than those who were not in Asia. And the not Asia was, was completely international, Europe, uh, South America, North America, etc. So you have to look at then the second line treatment options in those countries where they're less available in, in, uh, in Asian countries. Don't know. We do know that those who got placebo uh, instead of Dervalumab, that Half of them got subsequent treatment, and most of those were chemo, 45% chemo, only 4.5% immune therapy, which is fine. We don't have a standard of care, unless they're MSI high. And then 4.7 got targeted, um, which maybe is low. We know there are FGFR mutations, FGFR uh, mutations in cholangio and IDH1 mutations as well. Not sure how those were tested. Um, interestingly, our current favorite guidelines have GEMSYS and Gemsys Dervalumab, both as Category 1 options. Why they don't have a Dervalumab as the preferred option, say, is unclear. The discussion update is in progress, as it only seems to be. So, you know, um, I think most people are going to be using Dervalumab up front with this uh, because it's a bad disease, and, and you know, in even a small improvement in overall survival is welcome in a disease that's, that's quite challenging to treat. And the last update I have for you is the uh, Secombit trial. I, I have just a little bit of dyslexia, so I, I may be misremembering this or, or misreading my notes here. So this is metastatic melanoma BRAF mutated, uh, and uh, the primary endpoint here is two-year overall survival, and it's it's a little bit like that Ipi-Nevo versus Ipi versus Nevo study, although it's worse than that because they're not doing any formal statistical comparison between three arms. Uh, at least in that study, they looked at, they compared everything to, um, to, uh, to IPI. Um, they did NEVO versus IPI and NEVO-IPO versus IPI, but not NEVO-IPI versus NEVO, if that makes sense. Um, 
Anyway, so here are the arms. It's Ipi, so Ipilimimabnivolumab, Intel progression, then Incarafibinimetinib, so double, uh, double immune therapy versus double TKI, all right, after progression. Incarafibinimetinib, uh, Intel progression, and then Ipinivolumab. Or Incarafibinimetinib for a finite period of time for eight weeks, then Ipinimo until progression, and then Incarafinib, Benimetinib until progression. Now, and again, they're not comparing the two-year overall survival, which was the primary endpoint between these arms, but in order of highest two-year overall survival rate, it was Ipinivo first, then the TKIs had a 73% two-year overall survival rate in metastatic melanoma, then the abbreviated TKIs followed by Ipinivo, at progression, then dual TKI, 69% to your overall survival, and then those who got the dual TKI first, followed by immune therapy, had a 65% to your overall survival. This is very similar to what we saw with DreamSec, which was a two-arm study, but it looked at the sequencing of TKI followed by immunotherapy, dual immunotherapy with ipilimumab and nivolumab, compared to nevo, ipo, ipi, up front, followed by dual TKI. Same thing, using that combined nivolumab and ipilimumab immunotherapy up front led to longer survival in that trial as well. So it's nice that this confirms what we've seen before with some different TKIs in the same disease setting. Uh, I did uh, bench top research for two summers uh, uh, in undergrad at Purdue. One was in pharmacy school. And I remember in one of the labs, uh, the big goal was to try to find the role of sick in um, sick kinase in um, in cancer progression, and I remember the the uh, the lab leader was really disappointed one day because some other lab published the first result and they were trying to be the first, and and the talk lab was well we still got to confirm it you know you got to confirm it otherwise it's not real because over and over again in, in basic sciences one lab can do something and it can't be reproduced elsewhere so reproduce reproducibility is key in uh in uh in science and so we have some reproducibility here that at least combined immune checkpoint inhibitor first should be given first primarily to those with BRAP mutated disease and then you reserve the the dual tki for a second line setting now some folks don't like to do the dual immune checkpoint inhibitors because it is more toxic than just nivolumab um, the authors of this trial did state that if you have somebody with metastatic melanoma and they have very symptomatic disease, that you're more likely to get symptomatic control with TKI up front, but not to do TKI up front indefinitely. You do it basically as a debulking because you'll get a faster response with TKIs and metastatic melanoma, if it's BRAF mutated, than with checkpoint inhibitors. So you do, they would say, do these eight weeks of incarafinib, benimetinib, then do your immune checkpoint inhibitor. And the idea here is you're getting your immune checkpoint inhibitors in early, but you're not causing um, uh, BRAF or MEK inhibitor resistance, therefore it has some utility um, um, to reintroduce those after disease progression with immune checkpoint inhibitors. All right, that's nice. That's brief. Good control. Everyone enjoy, uh, enjoy your weekend. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at PharmDeetNib, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.